I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The coronavirus is, by any measure, a global challenge, forcing policymakers, healthcare providers, economists, and others to rethink basic assumptions about their work and the safety and soundness of core societal infrastructures. And crypto is no different, as wild fluctuations and turmoil have unsettled even the most hardened participants in the market. Which got me thinking, what would be the legacy of the coronavirus on crypto? I can think of no one better to ask than Nick Carter. When it comes to the crowded world of crypto pundits, few names get more attention and respect. See, Nick is the founding partner of Castle Island Ventures and is widely respected from corporate boardrooms to the Twitterverse as one of the most thoughtful and passionate investors in the space. And with global markets on edge with the growing challenges posed by the coronavirus, I thought he'd be the perfect voice to lend his perspective to the challenge. Nick, great to have you on the show. And, might I add, great to pull you from the work you're doing on your own podcast, On The Brink. Uh, thank you for, for advertising my podcast on your podcast. Of course, of course. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of, of your podcast. So thank you. It's great to, to actually appear on it. I guess we should start with really what's on uh, everybody's mind, uh, both in capital markets and crypto markets, which is the coronavirus. We've seen an enormous amount of market activity uh, when you think about the stock market, uh, and we've had some really dramatic uh, changes in terms of uh, the, the capitalization of global capital markets. But how have crypto markets fared, especially since the coronavirus has taken a hold of the world's attention? Well, the answer is not well. Yeah. So, you know, it's they're as um, you know, publicly tradable as, as any other asset, really, and um, ever since... Uh, you know, equities started their sell-off, so have uh, Bitcoin and other large-cap crypto assets. So this is definitely a, a dent in the narrative that, um, you know, crypto assets are truly uncorrelated. And that really goes, I think, to one of the pitches, if one will, about crypto assets. I mean, I know that you spend an enormous amount of your time uh, investing in uh, digital assets and uh, different kinds of potential digital asset infrastructures, but a lot of the resounding interest in uh, crypto assets really takes two parts. Uh, one is this kind of utility uh, question that it's going to create a base layer uh, infrastructure for investing in new kinds of services. But then there's just the, the basic question of diversifying uh, your asset and, and finding new things to own uh, really to protect yourself from different kinds of fluctuations in uh, securities markets. Do you think that what we've seen in crypto markets tends to suggest that investors should think about the former rather than the latter? Or, or do you think that there really is still something to the diversification argument? Well, it, it was always a little bit tenuous because the risk is that the correlations increase. So for most of, just to take one crypto asset, for most of Bitcoin's history, it has been mostly uncorrelated to virtually any financial asset you can find. Those correlations have clearly been increasing 
lately. We saw Bitcoin move roughly in concert with gold um, around the time of the, the recent Iran crisis. And then now we saw this massive sell-off in equities and Bitcoin sold off alongside. So there's always the risk if you spin that narrative that reality smacks you in the mouth at some point. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Do you have any sense as to why there's there's been growing correlation? Do you have any theories as to, as to what's driving that? Or it, it, does it speak to perhaps uh, the growing number of people who are investing in that space and their own behaviors may be more correlated to uh, other more well-trodden investment patterns? Well, I think it has to do with market participants. So in the, in the earliest days of Bitcoin, the only way to get it was really to mine it or to sell a product in exchange for Bitcoins. And the the holder base in the earliest days was overwhelmingly retail, right? Just normal folks uh, who are enthusiasts, maybe libertarians, uh, kind of uh, gold bugs maybe a little bit. As time has gone on, a huge amount of financial infrastructure has been built. We fund those companies. And that has meant that more sophisticated entities could get exposure to this asset class. Large custodians like Fidelity, my former employer, they built... Uh, Fidelity digital assets to allow institutional investors to get access to the asset class. So that has meant that an alternative or you know more kind of institutional caliber set of investors could get exposure to this asset. These are people that have a global macro view. And so it's not surprising to me that Bitcoin is behaving more like a macro asset these days. So so basically, as as we've moved from the world of the uh, smart geniuses trading uh, and uh, or mining uh, Bitcoin in their jammies in the in, in their basement, and you're moving to the world of Wall Street and institutionalized investing. Even as there's more sophistication, there 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 could be also more ironically uh, more more correlation just because they're importing some of the skills uh, that they've had from more traditional markets. Well, it's a poison chalice a little bit, you know. You, you know, people wanted to build this market infrastructure to allow Bitcoin to be traded like any other uh, macro asset. But at the same time, that means it's more likely it's going to be responsive to the market at large. And in a big sell-off like we saw, even gold was selling off, you know. So uh, some of these assets which are advertised as safe havens, you know, maybe those narratives get punctured a little bit. You know, I'm going to just sort of take a step back because usually when you think about stock markets and uh, how you price shares. You know, and we have different kinds of theories from business school classes and, and the like. You're, you're ultimately trying to make a prediction about the degree to which an, a company is going to uh, be successful. How, what are the future profits of, of a company? Uh, when you're thinking about a digital asset, um, it seems to me that the, the spectrum of considerations will be different. And so when you have something like the coronavirus coming around, right, it's easy to build a narrative where you say, okay, if, if you're Apple or if you have a supply chain in China, um, you're not going to necessarily be able to continue to produce certain kinds of goods, and which means your profits will be lower. What exactly are the kinds of considerations that you, as a sophisticated investor, sort of take into uh, consideration uh, when you want to invest in a crypto asset? And why or how would something like the coronavirus impact the share or price of any particular digital asset? Yeah, it's a great question. And if I had the answer, I'd, I don't know. We we might not be sitting here today. I'd probably we'd be sitting trading. on your exactly. Um, we'd be sitting on your on your private yacht. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the, the, it speaks to a deeper question, which is, you know, how do investors value these assets? And, and the truth is we haven't had that Graham and Dodd moment yet where um, a, a coherent valuation theory has emerged. Uh, the crypto industry is one where practice is prided above theory, and, and ha- it, that has been uh, the configuration to date. Um, you know, Bitcoin uh, is a, a growth-style monetary uh, virtual commodity, um, We've never really seen something like that. Um, I would compare it to something like gold, uh, just a neo form of gold. Um, but none of us were around when gold was being monetized, so we don't know what that looks like. Um, so, yeah, there isn't really a, uh, a single uh, method of evaluating these things. And then taxonomically, they're within the, the sphere of things you might call crypto assets. There's a a lot of heterogeneity. So there are some assets which, which are like uh, pseudo equity of a sort where there are cash flows and they can be added up and discounted. And, you know, you can value that. And then there are other assets which are meant to be stable relative to some, uh, you know, uh, dollars, various commodities. Um, but in the context of, um, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies or virtual commodities like Bitcoin, um, most of the price action is just a function of the discounted expectations of growth, really, because there are no cash flows. No one expects any cash flows. It's just we have a, a ledger space, and the slots in that ledger are scarce. They're capped. Um, and um, all market participants are doing is just evaluating the prospects for that ledger uh, to become more highly valued um, you know, for its unique properties. So that's that's really the analysis that people in the market are doing. Um, it since market opinions differ, it's very volatile. Um, and I would say the, the main things that really affect the price of Bitcoin in terms of catalysts tend to be regulatory. They tend to be uh, a function of market structure. So um, what's happening on the derivative exchanges? How much margin is being applied to the market? Uh, there's a huge amount of sort of an endogeneity, right? So it's it's yeah, it's not a, an easy question answer. Although, you know, th- that that is kind of interesting because by by making, you know, what seems to be a really uh, sort of smart intervention when you say, hey, look, you know, not all digital assets are the same. We, we have some kinds of digital tokens that look a lot like uh, stock. And, you know, Certainly. if they're tied to certain kinds of, if you have an equity-like token, then yeah, you should expect the value of those equity uh, tokens or equity-like tokens to fall in value just like any other share that's being traded on the NYSE. And, and then when you get to the commodity-like tokens, you can develop, I guess, a, also, as, as you were mentioning, a, a certain number of stories. And to the extent to which they're also used as cash-like uh, substitutes or money substitutes or money-like instruments, if there's less commerce going around, then there's there's less need for 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 money because there's going to yeah. be less uh, less spending, um, a slower velocity of money. And consider that um, you know most of these crypto assets, there is no um, supply response to demand changes, right? They're supply inelastic. So if there is a shock to demand, that gets manifested in, in the price and the exchange rate. Well, the the turmoil that we're seeing in the crypto markets right now is certainly not the first time that we've seen turmoil in crypto uh, in crypto world. I mean, we had our crypto winter. Let's call it the crypto winter 1.0. Um, and we were just sort of seeing some some green shoots, I think most people would suggest, both in terms of valuations of crypto assets as well as the money flowing into the space. And then the coronavirus comes along. Uh, do you expect to see a new crypto winter 2.0? And, and, and how do you think 
If so, that that would compare to the first iteration of Crypto Winter. I think uh, certain facets of the market will um, continue to be uh, marginalized. Um, so in the first Crypto Winter, obviously the, the, you know, the large cap cryptocurrency sold off. What also happened was a lot of those initial coin offerings uh, essentially evaporated. You know, and, and very few of those delivered a product, even close close to resembling what was you know promised to investors. So I do think that you know there are still a lot of outstanding uh, projects which sold a token to finance themselves. I think the SEC has a, some, a thing or two to say about that, and uh, we'll see more and more enforcement actions there. Uh, so probably some of them will get a safe harbor in the same way that EOS did and, and various other projects, you know, uh, a nominal fine and, and move on. Uh, but my guess is that the vast, vast majority of those tokens that were sold as a quasi-equity, highly centralized projects, uh, I think those will continue to just fade away over time. Um, but generally speaking, this is, um, you know, this is a 10-year-old uh, asset class or uh, industry, uh, call, call, you, call it what you will, uh, it's a bet on the emergence of uh, non-state uh, money. Uh, I don't think that idea is going away anytime soon. We built a huge amount of infrastructure, both wallets so that you can store private keys in a convenient way. So that's a new thing, uh, storing uh, financial value in the form of a string of information, which you can custody yourself. I, I think that's a relatively new concept. That's an important concept. That means that we can get value into the hands of people worldwide with very little intermediation. I think that's that's quite powerful. Uh, you don't even strictly need banks for that purpose. Uh, so the growth of stable coins, uh, CBDCs, anything in between, I think it's kind of a sliding scale there. Um, you know, that is a, a very potent um, thing. That's a relatively new thing. Even, you know, that wasn't happening the first time we had a crypto winter uh, in 2017, 18. Uh, that's only really kicked off and uh, grown a lot in the last year. So the tools that are available to entrepreneurs today in terms of exchanges, which are points of transition from sovereign currencies to crypto assets, uh, those have grown. Those are proliferated worldwide. And the actual user uh, tools available, uh, those are ubiquitous now. So I think it's still a story of growth. Again, uh, returning to this idea of the coronavirus. In many instances, it, it's just, uh, when I listen to what you've just said, it's just another new crisis that that any country can, uh, for whatever reason, experience. It can be a political crisis. It can be something that sparks dollarization. It can be problems with crops, or it could be, in this particular instance, a disease. And the monetary system, whenever there is a crisis, in any country is put under some kind of strain. And I, I wonder what your thoughts would be about the robustness of digital assets to these kinds of exogenous risks, right? So on the one hand, we have like the risk of just standard monetary theory, right? Capture or uh, abuse uh, by government or market participants, whatever. Uh, but, but, but when you think about like the, uh, the, 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 asteroid coming to hit the planet uh, kind of risk. The, the, uh, the question of robustness is one that kind of lingers in the shadows until you actually have a crisis. What do you think the experience thus far has been about how far the digital asset infrastructure has come and, and, and how far it has to go in terms of uh, gaining 
the necessary trust and awareness to go fully mainstreamed. I don't know if it ever will be mainstream, to be perfectly frank with you. And uh, many people in the crypto industry have this teleology about it where they say, we need to bring this thing to the mainstream. But to me, it's more about solving problems that people have. And the set of problems that are solved by the existence of crypto are maybe not addressable to most people. And I'm totally fine with that, right? So I'm probably not your your typical uh, crypto evangelist in that I don't actually believe in the aggressive mainstreaming of this technology. Uh, if you look at the U.S., um, the financial services industry uh, does a fairly good job. I mean, it certainly is not without its issues, and there's a lot of things I could point to, which are um, cases where people are being underserved by financial services. Um, you know, for instance, the the legal cannabis industry, you can't obtain banking. Um, but, um, you know, once you go outside the U.S., that's where I think crypto becomes much more relevant. Um, that's where it starts to solve really immediate problems. Um, and, it, and it can solve those problems today, even though it's still in, in a relatively primitive context. In terms of the biggest risks uh, to the industry, I would say um, the main... Um, historically, the main issues have been relating to the large service providers, like exchanges. Those are effectively banks for crypto users. Those exchanges tend to get hacked a lot. Um, that's always been the case and will probably continue to be the case. Um, and it's, I think the main reason is because crypto users have relatively low standards for the service providers they elevate. Most of these things are, um, these exchanges, crypto banks, they're totally unregulated, many of them. Uh, the most popular ones are unregulated. Some of them are onshore. Uh, so there's very little oversight there. Um, now you might say, well, we should just regulate them. But that's a little bit paradoxical because they wouldn't really be able to do their job very well if they're regulated in the, in the same way as banks are. Uh, but so I would say the biggest risks are really internal to the industry as opposed to exogenous. Nick, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. The coronavirus serves as a reminder for everyone, from Main Street to Wall Street, that life can change in an instant. And it's also putting basic societal institutions under the microscope, from our healthcare system to stock markets. And as crypto itself becomes more important to the economy, it too will attract its fair share of attention. Now, what a closer lens may hold in store for the industry is anyone's guess, but the repercussions could prove as long-lasting as the virus itself. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.